Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. This is Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on the home of Cork's Greatest Hits. Cork's Greatest Hits. Cork's, Cork's, Cork's Greatest Hits. C103. And a very good morning to you. Hoping we're finding you all in great form on what is a lovely, lovely autumnal Friday morning. It, it really is lovely. This kind of weather that we're getting for the end of September uh, really is delightful. So hopefully you're able to get out and about and enjoy it. Bernie's taking your calls, sitting in once again for John Paul, 1850-333-103 if there's anything you want to talk to us about uh, today. In particular, uh, Louise has contacted us and raised an issue about the presidential election and this is with regard to posters. So we're putting you on alert for poster sightings please. Has anybody seen an election po- a presidential election poster yet anywhere in Cork or anywhere that you might have been in the last few days on your travels. The election is now officially underway. The first debate went on yesterday but it was only between four of the six uh, candidates. Mm, A couple of interesting things uh, came out of it but it really is you could just sense it the campaign is just starting. It's just beginning to bubble up. Uh, We traditionally and unfortunately I think presidential elections in the past have turned into very nasty, dirty affairs. I'm hoping that the same won't happen this time round, but only time will tell. But Louise contacted us uh, because she is wondering and pondering about election posters and she says, will our environment be blighted by election posters? Louise is one of those people uh, who strongly believes we shouldn't have any of these election posters and of course the only way that that's ever going to happen is all of the candidates are going to have to agree. You Unanimously, that they're not going to put up posters and until that day happens once one decides to put up a poster then the rest are some of the rest will follow suit and this time round it's uh, Leonie Riada who is running for Sinn Féin she was first out of the traps it seems with her election posters and she had a team of activists from midnight on Wednesday when the when the campaign was officially underway putting posters up it seems that they got some of the prime slots including the entrance to Leinster House I wonder how that went down uh, in uh, Leinster House and of course Leonie Rieda is interesting in that she is the only one of the six candidates who's running under a party banner 
But if you look at the posters, you would know that she's running under a party banner because there is no mention at all of Sinn Féin. It is a photograph of Leah with the slogan, A New Ireland. Now, I know in the debate yesterday, she was asked about that. And uh, she said it, the reason that she hasn't put Sinn Féin anywhere on the posters is that the presidency in the office of the presidency is above politics. And that's her reason for not putting Sinn Féin on the poster. So she's the first to get posters up. I don't know if any of the Sinn Féin party have been putting the posters up in the Cork area. So if anybody has seen them, uh, let us know. I'm assuming we're not going to see as many posters as we did on previous elections because two candidates in the presidential election have already indicated that they're not going to use uh, posters. Sean Gallagher, who finished uh, second in 2011, he has previously criticised the use of posters. I don't know and I can't remember if he used them in 2011, but we're assuming because of his criticism of them, he's not going to use them this time. And first out to say she won't be using posters was uh, Senator Joan Freeman. She said absolutely no way. And she came out early to say it. I think in the hope that she could set a precedent and that others would follow suit but you know it's an individual choice and the fact that Leonie Rida has the posters up do and I when Michael D Higgins was launching his campaign the other day there certainly was posters in the room where he was doing his launch so we take it those posters are going to go up uh, around the country and only time will tell now if um, the other two Peter Casey and uh, Gavin Duffy whether they will decide to run posters or not. So election poster sightings, please. Have you seen an election poster yet? And what are your views uh, on it? Are you with Louise in thinking that they're just going to be a blight on the countryside for the next month and then a week after because it's, they're, they're allowed up for seven days after the count has finished they, and they then have to get them down. And of course, I know tidy towns committees are always given out about election posters because of the cable ties that are used, that they use around the polls, uh, while the people putting up, the activists putting up the posters are always very good about putting them up and they make them very secure to make sure that they don't get blown down. And of course, you know, this is going to be, these posters are going to be up for the month of October. We don't know what way the weather's going to be in the month of October. So I take it that they're being really careful to secure them to all of the polls around the country. But then when they come back to take them down, they're not always as careful when they're taking them down that they leave some of the cable ties on the polls. And that, I know, causes great annoyance, certainly to tidy towns uh, groups. Uh, So if you spot an election poster, let us know. 1850-333-103. Coming up on the programme this morning, the effect that seclusion and restraint practices can have on some special needs children when they're in schools. I find it even hard to say restraint practices when you're talking about a child with special needs, it just doesn't sit right, does, does it? Inclusion Ireland, who uh, represent children with uh, intellectual disabilities, has brought out a report and some of the families have spoken and described what has happened to their children. It's disturbing. Some of it's very, very disturbing uh, reading. We're also going to hear how some low-income families are struggling to make ends meet. And I'll, I'll be interested in digging deeper into this story and finding out, like, are we talking about families who just live on social welfare? Are we talking about families that live on low income? What role is housing? You can be guaranteed that 
that the cost of housing and keeping a roof over the head of families is really causing family causing uh, households that have a low income uh, and you need to keep paying the rent and you need to keep that roof over your head of your children that's going to be a top priority paying the rent and then I take it after that where do you go next you put the money into food put the money into heating does that come next um, and because of that because families are prioritizing and they're like any they're, they're probably some of the best accountants in the world, the way they budget and the way they manage their money and manage their money so carefully because all you need is is some kind of an emergency to go wrong that can eat into that very tight budget and then of course bills get delayed um, and then you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul and there's stories in this particular study that show some families that when it comes to it, when there's very little food left in the food cupboard and they have children the food goes to the children, which means some of the parents are actually going hungry, which just in 2018 does not sit well with me when we are seeing as a country that is on its uppers, is doing really well uh, across Europe, where we're kind of one of the poster boys of the European countries. The, our, our economy is doing so well. And if this is happening at a time when we're doing well and people are worried about what's going to happen to the economy with the Brexit looming, don't you? You would really have to worry for those families that are already uh, struggling. On a much lighter note, I'm looking forward after 11 to, to welcoming John Hooten, the Mallow photographer, award-winning photographer to studio, and he comes in to talk about his new book, The Way We Were. And I have had so much enjoyment this week flicking through the pages of this photography book and just getting lost in some of the photographs. It is an absolutely stunning book. And when you get to see it, and if you get to see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. All of our childhoods, literally anyone that grew up in Ireland uh, in the last 50, 60 years, there's a bit of your childhood in this book. I guarantee you, you will open the pages of this book and say, we had that exact same item or that, ex- that, that exact same photograph many of them the religious photographs you will have had them hanging somewhere in your uh, house we'll talk with uh, John uh, later on we'll also talk with the Friends of Kilcumper Old Graveyard they were a year now uh, since they got together and decided to do a clean up of the graveyard they're a great little group of uh, volunteers will be celebrating their first year of success and chatting about their plans uh, going forward we're also going to hear about the official welcoming welcome home for our world champion rowers Gary and Paul and uh, Sunita Puspor they have an official uh, the uh, there's kind of an, I know they, they, they came home last week but there's, there's an official welcoming home tomorrow in Farron Woods so we'll give you details because it's open to the general public so it'll be great to uh, see a large number of people go down uh, there to welcome them home and we'll go to the movies with Mark Malone and in the midst of all of that we'll hear your calls and comments keep them coming to 1850 333103 text or WhatsApp 0862 103103 According to a report from Inclusion Ireland Children with disabilities as young as five are at risk of psychological harm caused by the use of unregulated seclusion and restraint practices in schools. Mark O'Connor of Inclusion Ireland, the representative group for children with intellectual disabilities, joins me and Mark is Community Engagement Manager uh, with Inclusion Ireland. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Patricia. And and you are welcome. Are, Are there any guidelines for schools when it comes to the use of exclusion and our restraint? for children with disabilities? Um, there aren't, no. Um, the department will, will, will say that there are um, some 
guidance in place, but you'll find these typical guidance that are there in, in very unusual places. Like, for example, one of them exists in the specifications on building of schools, which is a very unusual place to find something. And and it and it's more um it it more talks about um what a room looks like in a physical environment and then that children should maybe if uh, if if they're feeling upset could um go down to this room and take a bit of time out. Now what we are talking about is something slightly different here. Well actually it's it, it's night and day in fairness. We're talking about children being physically taken down to these rooms and being being locked in for extended periods of time. Now, when we look at teaching codes of practice and all that, I will say children should never be left alone. So um, that that's maybe what the department might refer to. But around restrictive practices, no, there's no guidance, there's no regulation, there's no monitoring, and there's no reporting of it. So the department don't know um, how prevalent this issue is. Like, while Inclusion Ireland, you know, we, we, we've highlighted 14 cases that, that we were aware of, and, you know, we're, we're aware of one or two others who didn't want to take part in this discussion document, but the department have no idea because they simply don't ask schools to report on this. And when a child is put into isolation, and it's obviously done mm. for, for behaviour uh, reasons, are you saying they're locked into a room and left alone for a period of time? Yes, and, and I'll come back to your first point, actually. Now, in some of the cases, it's for behaviour reasons, but in some of the other cases, um, the children were able to tell their parents that they were put into a room because of um, maybe not having their homework done, maybe chattering a bit too much in class, and some light-hearted messing and so forth. Now, one or two of them were as a result of behavioural issues. But to answer your question, yes, they, they, um, they've been locked into a room. Um, Inclusion Ireland were given uh, two pictures by uh, that, that had been taken in schools by two of the parents. And, you know, one of them uh, depicted a room that had bars on the windows and, you know, it was quite a dark um, room with peeling paint and all of that. And, and the other one, uh, while being a much lighter space, it was evident um, on, on the back of the door that, that the, the child would be facing that uh, there was no handle or, or no mechanism for opening the door from the inside. And how long would they be left in that room? Um, some of the children were unaware um, of, of how long the period was, but um, for a couple of the children, it was as much as four and five hours. Um, there, there was a mum uh, spoke at, uh, we, we held a seminar on this issue on Wednesday and there was one brave parent uh, spoke at the seminar and, and she described how her son would be put into this room and she knew and she had told the school that being put in the room was frightening the life out of him. He was really, really upset by this. And the teacher would come back to the room every so often and say to him, now when you're qu- calm and quiet for five minutes, we'll let you out. But the more he was been left in the room, the more upset and and uh, and, and, and traumatised by the whole experience he was getting. So he, he was spending, he, he spent more than two hours in the room. And we're talking about children with special needs, children perhaps on the, the autism spectrum. Yeah, um, well, I, I would say all of, all of the ones that are in our report, yes. Now, it, it, there is a likelihood um, that, it, that it may be involving other children, but... The children in this particular report um, all had uh, disabilities of one form or other, um, and and uh, a few of them did, did indeed have have a diagnosis of autism, um, and 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 that's a thing because um, 
you know, children, not all children, obviously, but some children with autism um, have a certain way of thinking about the world. So they've come back to parents and they've said, you know, when when they've been in the room, it was, you know, they felt very down and very low about themselves. Oh, teacher doesn't like me and I'm a bold boy and all of this stuff. So it's had a significant effect. Yeah, as as I'm saying, in our report, the 14 children um, did have disabilities, but there is research from the USA and it indicated that, um, that you know, they, they, they looked at, you know, they looked at all children who had been restrained or secluded um, across a period of time in the USA, and it was, it was many, uh, many thousands. And 12% of all children in the survey had a disability. However, more than 70% of the children that were restrained or secluded had a disability. So it disproportionately affects children with disabilities. When, and, and I... The word restraint uh, just yep. doesn't sit well with me, not when I'm yep. talking about a child with a disability. Yep. What, what type of restraints are you talking about? Um, a number of different ones. I suppose, look, in terms of the cases that are in our report, um, you know, one of the children uh, was able to describe to his mum uh, how he was um, lifted up and, and carried in a horizontal fashion and put into a room. So that, that was that was one type. Um, another type was um, where a mum described her son being held against the wall for an extended period of time um, by an adult. And uh, a, another one, um, and, and the most worrying one, was uh, one of the children was, uh, sorry, two of the children actually in the report were subjected to what's known as a prone restraint. And that's where a person is held face down by two or three adults. Um, the reason it, it's uh, it, it's such a risky move is that, you know, if it goes wrong or if, if perhaps one of the adults isn't trained or the child's struggling and so forth, um, you know, it, it, it can result in significant injury. But something, um, Patricia, that I'd like to point out as well is that um, this, this this discussion document is, is definitely definitely not a dig at um, the adults that, that are um, in schools. You know, we're very mindful that, um, you know, there, there are ways of avoiding this kind of stuff completely. You know, if teachers and SNAs have training in whole-of-school positive behaviour supports, if they've got training in uh, crisis intervention. So crisis intervention can sometimes be a reaction to the situation that presents in front of you. But what it also does is it tools up the teachers and the SNAs that they can see a situation that in 30 minutes might develop into a situation where we're in crisis. So they can see it long before it happens and they can get in there and nip it in the bud. And do something so, 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 it, so it doesn't so it, escalate. So Absolutely. So it never escalates. But can, can I also pick you up, Mark, when you said uh, one of the parents was very brave in, mm-hmm. in, in, in speaking out at, at um, uh, your launch. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to delve into this because I know some parents will be listening saying, why would a parent be brave? If that was my child, I'd be singing from the yeah. rooftops if that happened. I, I'll, t- I'll tell you exactly why. Um, of the 14 cases that are in our report, uh, two of the children were expelled from school. Well, you know, in issues directly to do with this, one of the children, for example, the mum contacted Tussler, the Child um, and, and Family Welfare Agency and, and Child Protection Agency. When Tussler rang the school to make an inquiry, that child was suspended straight away. Parents who've objected to these practices the school would say, right, if you're not letting us use the room, we're ringing you anytime something happens. Now, 
And that, and that's probably rightly so. That if a child loses control, absolutely the parent should come and and pick them up. However, we are aware of parents being called in for very, very minor issues. Um, you know, su- such as uh, you know the, the the parent might get a phone call at ten past nine, and they arrive back to the school at about twenty past. The child's sitting there, nice and calm, and they'll be getting you know a message. Well, he looks a bit up, so we're not going to risk it today. So. Parents are seeing these things happen to to to, um, to to other parents. Parents talk at the school gate, and and they know what's going on when somebody's speaking up. And the parents in our report have told us that in their schools they're aware of other uh, parents who are just simply afraid to speak up on the issue because yeah, because, of, because to see what happens. And they're afraid of losing their place. They're afraid of losing uh, uh, of, of losing the place in the school. I'm very conscious of the time and I know you've got to be yep. done at half past and it's half past. So I'll no let chance. you go there. No doubt we'll talk again uh, about this, Mark. But thank you for that. And, thank you uh, very much. And thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Mark O'Connor, um, Community Engagement Manager with the Inclusion Ireland. And what I can only say when I read it during the week is a most, most uh, disturbing report from Inclusion Ireland. And let's just hope that the powers that be uh, pick up on it and do something about it and take this fear away from parents with a child with disabilities that if they complain or give out or try to do something to protect their child that their child will lose the place in the school. I mean only was it last week it was we I read out an email that I got from one of our own local mothers who has a 16 year old son, uh, an autistic son as she said you know a great big lad he's 6 foot uh, 3 and he had uh, a bit of a meltdown in in school and he frightened some of the staff and you know his mum said look he's a big lad I can understand how he would frighten some of the adults and he got suspended from school and he's been suspended he's not, he's still not back in school he, he doesn't go back to school until I think the middle of October but then the problem just gets transferred onto home and mum has to cope with it all on her own and obviously she's trying to work as well at the same time and it's just and and when I wanted when we wanted to do to try to investigate it for her and see if we could help in Anyway, she was saying, no, you know, you can't mention my name. You can't mention the school. So in fear that they might turn around and say, well, sorry, we're going to expel your child instead. And then she will be left with no school place. That fear factor has got to be removed from parents of children with disabilities. If they have concerns and at the end of the day, they are the ones that know their children the best. They've got to be able uh, to voice their concerns and they've got to be able to be heard without that fear that their son or daughter is going to lose their school place. I remember many years ago speaking with Emily Lowen, the former Ombudsman for Children and she'd called to the studio and we were having a cup of coffee this, we were chatting off air and this whole issue of children with disabilities and I was saying do you investigate many cases around children with disabilities and she said she does hear about them uh, but when she needs to get details from the parents they won't and for that reason the fear factor that they lose their place we have to do something around that we really do because if we don't then practices like this uh, and, the, and, and psychological harm is going to be caused to this 
these children and physical harm is going to be caused to these children. Nobody wants to think that their son or daughter, particularly a child with disabilities, goes to school and can end up as one of the cases in this report uh, spoke about Killian, a little 11 year old boy who was placed in a small room with a single window uh, and no furniture. Uh, he, he, was, he was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and he was prone to having meltdowns uh, and he was put into this room because of a meltdown and he was left there for five hours. She eventually got called and found him and he was lying in a fetal position and uh, it was just shocking. It was just a very, very disturbing case. 1850 Bernie's taking your calls. You can text our uh, WhatsApp 0862-103-103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Text Patricia with your comment now. 0862-103-103. Now, according to a landmark study published this week, parents struggling to make ends meet regularly go without food, adequate clothing and social engagement and always put their children's needs first. The study, entitled Stories of Struggle, was commissioned by the Society of St Vincent de Paul and the Venetian Partnership for Social Justice. Joining me from the VPSJ, uh, Director Dr Bernard, uh, Dr Bernadette McMahon. Uh, good morning to you, Bernadette. Good morning. Uh, you, you're welcome. You, you granted families anonymity. Yes. Did that give them greater f- uh, freedom to open up to the researchers? Oh, yes, much better because I had the privilege of meeting the whole 30, not all together, but individually. And I can tell you, once they knew there was a guarantee of confidentiality, they opened up and were very frank and because they knew that the information might be helpful to others and also that it, it was safeguarded, you know. Do some of them almost feel ashamed? Oh, they do. They feel ashamed that they cannot give their children what they would like to give them. They really, if you look at what they're doing, they have no reason to be ashamed because, you know, um, they are, they struggle, they, they make their children their priority. The children's needs um, come first all the time and they're making sacrifices which you wonder what the long-term impact will be on the parents themselves. You know, if food runs out, it's, you know, and they try to make sure it doesn't, it won't run out for the children. Um, as we said, the clothing earlier on, one parent said she didn't know when um, she had clothes. And because we give people um, um, a sum of money, you know, we give them a token in recognition of their contribution to the project. So I got a letter back from one of them saying, this is the first time I was able to buy anything for myself in the last 11 years. My God. So, and, and, you know, putting, you know, food. They, you, look, you go to the food cupboards, there's just small amount of food left. So obviously the children get fed and, and you're saying the parents will go hungry. Well, well, they'll have bread. They'll have bread and butter. Um, they might have an egg, you know, but yeah. they won't have a, a proper meal. And then also um, parents, and, and again, the front and other work as well, you know, their parents will say to the children, oh, we ate earlier on, now you sit down now. So... Um, no, they're, it's... So the they're stop. shielding their children from it? They are. There's certain... Oh, yes, I think, you know, the, the extent of poverty is well and truly camouflaged for the children. Were they working families or families in receipt of social welfare? Well, 15%, half of them were in, in dependent solely on social welfare transfers. The other four, 15 um, had was a combination of social transfers working part-time. Only one was working full-time. The cost of housing, Bernadette, was that a common theme for all families? Oh, yes, but housing, you know, the, 
to actually when we look at the housing at the moment of this of the housing fourteen of the thirty now were in private rented. Seven of them were in social housing. Seven were coping with the aftermath and still at the reality of a mortgage and two were homeless. Goodness me. Goodness yeah. me. And, and and I suppose really no surprise to hear that the children's needs are always going to be prioritised by parents. No, but you know, the sad thing to say is that they are. And, you know, can you imagine every week, you know, you're going to meet the costs of your face with the reality of having to pay for food, rent, um, education because costs come in, uh, keeping the house warm, some clothing because the children grow so quickly, transport to get to school. And then also the parents try and make sure that the children have some out, uh, social outlook. They don't want them to be separated from the peer group. So can you imagine every week, week after week, you're looking at, at the inadequacy uh, of your response to each of those needs. And then you feel guilty on top of that because your, your children are not going to have what their parents say they deserve. They're only going to be children once. And yet these families, Bernadette, highly organised when it comes to budgeting. Well, they're very organised. And, and I was one time, you know, when I think very early on, when I was starting this work over 20 years ago, I said to one mother, would you think of getting maps? And she looked at me as if I came from outer space. She said, I don't need help to manage 180. That, that's further back than 20 years ago. But they don't need help to manage a very small income. Because, you know, you've got the money in front of you and you've got all those needs and food food is um, a priority. Yeah, it's funny. I remember many years ago having somebody in from MABS saying that very same point that when families come in and sit down in front of them, he said, many of the families, he said, our work is done. He said they are budgeting to, you know, within an inch of their life. They, oh. they, they, there's no waste they have everything streamed to the last. But all you need, when you're on a tight budget like that, Bernadette, all you need is for something to go wrong, some kind of an emergency where €50 Euro needs to be paid out on something. And that throws the whole budget out the window. It does, exactly. And then you go into debt. But one story was a very simple one day in one family. They always say how good the children are. This is a lone parent. And this was a, a teenager. And they were going on a school trip, you know, an education trip. And she asked the mother for €5 Euro for lunch. You know what the mother said? Not only didn't I have five euro in my purse, I had five euro nowhere. And so she said to the girl, uh, that, you know, and the child said to her, don't worry, mum, it's all right. God help her. And that is, you know... Yeah, that's, you that's hard. That is really hard. I think, you know, when we are, when we don't understand or whether we're critical of people who don't make ends meet, we have no idea of what the family are going through. You know, um... And I remember some of them saying, poverty is a burden, but so also is the attitude of people around. And that's why earlier in the week, and we discussed it here on this programme, when and, and I predicted at the time it was kite flying, uh, the notion that they might pay out the Christmas bonus uh, this year. And we had some people saying, oh, should people on social welfare, they're always looking for handouts. But we had other people saying that in their minds, they've already spent that money. They know yeah, exactly where that money is they going. Do, and it's going to go on the children. And But you know, um, Trisha, sometimes you might do a programme on all the myths there are about people in poverty, that they're wastrels, they drink, they're irresponsible. You know, there are all those myths out there. And as long as they stay out there, people can justify, you know, um, not increasing social welfare rates, not increasing taxes, you know, a yeah, lot of myths. Yeah. And the, child, the cost of childcare, did, did that come up as a barrier to getting out to work? Oh, yes, very much so. You see, because so 
many well, so many were unemployed, so that it wasn't an issue for them because, um, you know, they weren't able to get, they couldn't report childcare, and there wasn't any accessible uh, and affordable childcare nearby. So it is certainly it's an obstacle to looking for part-time employment because, and it's also an obstacle to getting to learn, you know, to getting upskilling, to go and upskill your so that you can get part-time employment. The report um, I saw was launched by uh, the Minister for Social Protection, Regina Doherty. Uh, What are the recommendations, Bernadette, and what can the government do to help? Well, I'd say, first of all, you know, I think we would notice the first thing is that can you actually benchmark social welfare payments and and the national minimum wage against the cost of living? That's the first thing. Okay. Because the and, and social welfare transfers are needed. They certainly reduce the number of people in poverty and every increase is welcome, but they don't meet the cost of a minimum standard of living. So if we could benchmark them, and, go, and that is the goal, I think, because, you know, um, the minister, I, we found the minister and I said, this is not a, a party political remark because I, I only got... To, saw her, and I don't know her very well, but what came across was her empathy, but also her understanding that she has a goal for uh, trying to reduce poverty for children and for one-parent households. So we hope that with every increase in the budget, so the, the first thing is increase the income, second one is to try and make services, what you said about childcare, more accessible and fo- affordable. And uh, the other one, too, is to try and provide people with reasonable employment and not precarious employment. We heard stories of one woman who had trained as a carer, but what happened was that she had an hour in one place and then she had an hour, a half away, a half, a, half an hour journey away. So, and she had to have a car. So she had to give up the work because she only had three hours a week. Oh God! But and it was based on, yeah. you know. And you looked actually. The I should have said this at the outset as well. Your study looked at people in both urban and rural areas <laughs> because people living in rural areas, that car is vital. Oh, it is, and we met families actually, which because for some reason you know they weren't able to keep up with the insurance costs or the maintenance costs. You know they were isolated and they were totally dependent on the neighbour helping them to go do the, to go for the to the town for shopping and they said how embarrassing that is because you know you can't always be asking your neighbour but without the neighbour they wouldn't be able to go and then the knock on effect as well for families on a very low income living in a rural area if their children are involved in you know sporting activities the local GAA club and they need a lift to training no. there isn't always petrol in the car no. and this thing about you know Parents are very, you know, a meal, food is very, is a number one priority, and heating and clothing. But also, they want their children to feel part of society, you know, not to feel odd, not to feel different. And that's where the guilt comes in. Yeah, and then you can imagine the psychological effect that it's going to have going forward. My God. Listen, it was a fantastic study. Well done to everybody involved, uh, Bernadette. And I enjoyed our chat this morning. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. No, not our pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Dr. Bernadette McMahon of the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice and that study along with the Society of Vincent de Paul. Can I just give you some of the quotes by the way, just a, just a couple of the quotes that came out. And as I say, because all the families were guaranteed anonymity, they felt they were able to open up more because there is a shame 
around an embarrassment, and there shouldn't be, around being uh, poor. Uh, one of the mothers said, we only buy clothes for the children and we wait until there are holes in something before we actually replace it. Another said, I'm not coping, I'm not coping well at all. I'm going from day to day with little or no food sometimes. Our gas was turned off. Our gas will be turned off soon uh, because we simply don't have the money to pay the bill. Another one says, I can't afford to fill the oil tank. I can fill a barrel with kerosene from time to time. Or I'll get together 50 euro and buy 50 euro worth of baguettes and coal. It's a big house and it's very cold. And I worry because my daughter is asthmatic. I imagine the winter that poor mother is heading into. And then a final one. It is a constant struggle and there's a lot of suffering. I keep going by focusing on the children. It's a great stress when the unexpected happened. For example, my house was flooded in 2010 and the insurance covered the cost. But now I don't have any insurance and I have the stress and the anxiety on top of that. I can't sleep. My daughter can sense I am worrying. I tried to cover up, which just adds to the stress. So for people who who give out and talk about people living on social welfare and that they're lazy and they're layabouts and all of that, just uh, be, keep in mind a report like that. When I mean, you think of how those people are trying to struggle just to make ends meet. 1850 Lines open. Uh, some reaction to my uh, chat about uh, with that report that's out on uh, people struggling and just how difficult it is for some families and can I once again emphasise nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors when people are critical and say oh, that family have everything they're on social welfare and they have everything you do not know what goes on behind those uh, closed doors the West Cork listener says I hope this message finds you well thank you um, um, I was just listening about the many stories that you read out about how many people are struggling living on social welfare and on low income in this country my heart goes out to these people thank you for covering this topic because hopefully it'll stop people verbally abusing and instead it might prompt people to help out instead and that's from a West Cork listener and Chris thank you for that Chris says Trish where can one donate to and know that it will alleviate that uh, suffering well I've got great faith in the Society of uh, St Vincent de Paul I think they do the most uh, amazing work uh, also great faith in people like um, Katrina Toomey in Penny Dinners they're, they're, they do absolutely uh, amazing work but if you want money to go locally I would suggest meeting a, a local member of the Society of St Vincent uh, de Paul they will know of a particular family that your donation can actually go to they do uh, terrific work OK some of your thoughts coming in to us on presidential candidates and election posters and Catherine tying in the topic of election posters with my interview in the last hour with the Society of Vincent de Paul and Social Justice Ireland, Catherine says, would it not be a good idea if our presidential candidates donated the money wasted on posters to helping the likes of St Vincent de Paul or the Simon community or Penny Dinners? I'm sure people would be a lot more inclined to vote for them knowing that they'd done something charitable says uh, Catherine. Thank you for that, uh, Catherine. Someone says, I feel very strongly about these election posters and I feel so strongly I think they should be banned because of the ridiculous amount of money spent on them and the blight they've caused to our environment. I personally will never vote 
for candidates who have posters on every poll in a town or on the countryside. I become incensed with them. They should be against the law. But you see, that's what we need. We need some some government to decide to some political party to ban them completely, and then are for all of the political parties to get together but then you'd have to have all the independents as well everybody if you can't get everybody to agree an outright ban I think maybe that listener uh, is the way to go uh, somebody else is not impressed with the Sinn Féin parties and then I assume with Leah Nerea uh, this texter says at the ploughing match Sinn Féin had a tent I think what they call the political parties that attend to the ploughing and when I was passing it I noticed they were selling t-shirts with hunger strike written on the front of them. I didn't go in, but I certainly wouldn't be supporting a president with those beliefs um, or anyone who would be involved with the IRA. Well, Leonie Reader says she, while she absolutely has the support and the backing of the Sinn Féin party and it was the Sinn Féin TDs and senators who signed her nomination papers and they are the ones obviously who are funding her her campaign but she says the reason that Sinn Féin is not in any of her posters that the presidency is above politics but absolutely Sinn Féin are funding her campaign and then on the posters and I've asked people to keep a lookout perhaps over the weekend if you keep it in mind if you spot any posters let us know on Monday because I assume the posters are going to go up in earnest over the next few days it was Leah Neuria that was first out of the blocks or her team of activists were first out of the blocks putting up posters Charlie Duggan says there were a lot of election posters around the three arena and the bus station on O'Connell Street in Dublin all of them for Leah Neuria and Pat rang to say he was driving from from Moy to Mitchellstown about an hour ago and he saw plenty of posters. Now this is this is to quote Pat for the lady presidential candidate from Sinn Féin. Her name is Leonie Rieda. Um, so obviously not everybody knowing her name. So it looks like there are posters gone up certainly in the Cork area for Leonie Rieda but none of the other candidates who we assume are putting up posters Michael D. Higgins, Peter Casey or Gavin Duffy. None of them are gone up yet. And somebody was asking about the funding of the presidential uh, candidates this came up yesterday as part of the first of the debates and Joan Freeman is is taking loans from wealthy businessmen. There's a kind of a bit of controversy. Some of the papers are picking up on this. She admitted that she has been partially funded by a businessman, a millionaire by the name of Des Walsh, who's an American, who has given the senator a commercial loan of €120,000. And the reason it's a bit commercial is Des Walsh is the executive vice president of Herbalife Nutrition and that was uh, previously at the centre of a huge settlement in the States about it operating a pyramid scheme Um, Herbalife they sell nutritional and weight loss products isn't that what they do but they they seem to be more interested in getting salespeople in and you know it it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck it is a duck it is all the evidence of it being a pyramid uh, scheme so there was a you know whether this will prove to be controversial for Joan Freeman or not I don't know but she was basically saying yesterday she doesn't have the money herself in the bank to fund a campaign like this so she's taking loans loans of which she's going to pay back she's paying that particular loan back at an interest rate I think of 9% 9%. she says she has to borrow money 
because they estimate that the cost of the campaign is somewhere around €350. I mean, she speaks about I live in a semi-D, I have a mortgage, I have bills, as does everybody else. She also said she's received a €10,000 loan from a Tipperary businessman by the name of Michael Madden. He's the chairman of Tenneco Capital, never heard of the company, and he had previously made political donations to Labour's uh, TD Alan Kelly, who is a Tipperary man. Uh, So he's given a loan of uh, 10,000. Leonie Rieda will have the financial backing from Sinn Féin. And then the other businessmen, Peter Casey and Sean Gallagher, they indicated they'll draw largely on their personal wealth. They are both wealthy men. And Gavin Duffy has come out. He's secured a bank loan to help fund uh, his activities over the coming months. And um, I'm I'm assuming, I mean, the last time out, Michael Hickens would have been supported by the Labour Party. But do I take it this time around? He's funding it all himself out of his own uh, money. Uh, So some are saying, waste of money, why not give it to charity uh, instead? Patricia, I would say that Michael D. Higgins is paying all the others to get him elected, judging by yesterday's uh, interviews in the first debate. It was a bit of a, yeah, it was a bit of a damn squid. I think it's uh, my, I listened to it yesterday. All I would say is it's early days yet. I'm, I'm always fearful of the presidential election because it just gets so nasty. But yeah, I mean, the newspaper's covering it today, but there wasn't much to write home about out of yesterday's, but that was only the first. Let's let's just uh, wait and see. OK, we spoke earlier with Inclusion Ireland and I mentioned about children who are have been who have had restraint practices and this is a report that's come out from Inclusion Ireland and been put into seclusion these are, are children with various levels of intellectual disabilities children on the autism spectrum and the the supports coming out showing the psychological effect and harm that can be done by the use of unregulated seclusion and restraint practices in schools Robert says all this inclusion is fine but what about other children's rights and their right to learn in a peaceful safe environment too many parents with children with a disability won't accept that their children aren't suitable to mainstream uh, school very Christian of you there Uh, Robert uh, I think parents have a right to pick whatever school they want for for their child I think in in defence of the other children and you're right all the children in the class have a right to learn in a peaceful environment but if proper procedures are put in place and this is where you need to go back to the Department of Education they need to put the proper interventions in place and the staff need to get the correct training Uh, if if there's children with, with disabilities children with special needs, intellectual disabilities in the class, if this properly trained staff know what to look out for, you won't end up with a meltdown. You won't end up with a child having challenging uh, behaviours uh, and certainly the answer to it is not to lock a child into a room and leave them secluded for up to five hours and including the child being held down and restrained by an adult. I don't think anybody even at the expense of your child's education that you would want to be in a situation where your child is witnessing that uh, either. 1850 333 103 and I just want to go to Michael in Castletown Bear who now who sent in a text about the primetime programme that was on last night. Now, I'll say at the outset, this was to do with the 10th anniversary, wasn't it? The signing of uh, the bank, uh, the bank guarantee scheme, and there's a lot on the papers about it as well. And there was a, as Michael says, a much hyped primetime program last night. 
I didn't watch it. Do you know what I opted instead to watch? I watched the programme on the Rotunda and all the babies been born. Uh, and I, I think that's a gorgeous programme. Even though if you watched it last night, there was a very sad scene of conjoined twins that died. I, I, it had me in tears, I have to say. So I opted not to watch the primetime programme. I said I might watch it over the weekend. Even though reading Michael's comment, I might have been... It might, been, it might have been the right decision not to have watched it. Michael says, I watched the much type primetime programme last night. I was very disappointed with the overall programme, says Michael. Ireland is an agricultural country. And according to Michael, agriculture was completely forgotten about. He said it was ignored. Rural Ireland was destroyed by the cutbacks and the bailout that will never be forgotten for many a long day to come. And it is still being destroyed Towns and villages, he said, do not and will not survive without a vibrant countryside. Rural Ireland needs a lot of indigenous businesses to attract people out of the cities and fill the vacant houses there, which they fill the vacant houses there, which would help to eliminate some of the housing issues. Those indigenous businesses would need to be located all over Ireland. The problem at the moment is that everything and everybody is being fast forwarded towards the cities, especially Dublin. Um, thank you, says Michael and Castletown. So, so all of us, good, good point. I would have thought a lot of the focus yesterday on that programme would have been on rural Ireland, but according to Michael, no. But that leads nicely into some, giving me an opportunity to mention a, a company that's set up in rural Ireland down the wild Atlantic West a number of years ago. It's an Irish skincare health product. The company are called uh, Modern Botany and it was a company set up by two lovely men who joined us in studio actually a while ago to talk about it, Simon Jackson and uh, John Murray. They work out of Skull and they produce products that are 100% natural. They're unisex personal care products. They've got this wonderful oil and the most delicious smelling deodorant I have ever uh, smelt. And they're inspired by the principles of botanical science and they utilise the best natural ingredients source from Ireland and all around the world and obviously they decided to set up their headquarters in the Irish Wild Atlantic Way and they've been a huge, huge success story. And I had an email from them yesterday to say because this is is Cancer Week and we spoke about it being Cancer Week yesterday on the programme they have decided to, to donate the profits of all their online sales from their site for a 24 hour period from tomorrow night Saturday no it's from tonight from midnight tonight to midnight tomorrow night and they're going to it's just as a kind of a way of giving back to the Irish Cancer Society because this is uh, a cancer week and actually all of their products because they're 100% natural they are kind to the most sensitive of skin and they make them especially safe, safe for those who are un- undergoing cancer treatments uh, as well just to just to put that in so if you're interested in buying any products from the company then log onto their website and do it from midnight tonight until midnight tomorrow night uh, knowing that you'll be helping out the Irish Cancer Society at the same time. Modernbotany.com Modernbotany.com And well done to Simon and uh, John. That's a lovely, kind, kind gesture. C103 Jobs the Lep Inn in Lep, they are looking for an experienced bar person and a kitchen porter. It's for midweek and weekend work. 
Home and Away Care, they're based in Bandon. They're looking for home carers for the West Cork area. While fully qualified first and second fit carpenter is wanted for Fitzgerald Construction in Mallow. And an experienced qualified chef is required to work daytime hours again in Mallow Town. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Cork today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment now. 1850 333 103. Now my next guest has just produced his third photography book and Mallow native John Hooten has gone down a different route with this book and he's moved away from his landscape images with a book that he has entitled The Way We Were and it documents images of old abandoned houses and uh, John Hooten joins me in studio. Good morning to you, John. Thank you, Patricia. And you're, for me. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Move nice and close into that microphone um, for me. Every photo in this book tells a story. Tell me how the book came about. Well, I think about, as you know, landscape photography has always been my passion and still is. Um, but I was out in the Blasket Island a number of years ago and I was looking at all the abandoned houses. Now, they're only basically stone rooms there at the moment. Um, and I kind of said to myself, it's an awful shame someone didn't actually photograph this extensively before it was abandoned and evacuated back in 1954. And then it started prompting me to, to when I've come across some of the houses on the mainland, um, I started looking at, a good friend of mine as well, Morgan O'Neill, who was in, in Mallow Camera Club at that time, was doing doing a bit of it as well. And, and he inspired me a little bit to, to do a little bit of it. Um, so that's where it basically started from. And then uh, as I came across some of the houses, I'd go up, have a look and see is there any potential in them before I start seeking out who owns them and get permission to go in, go into them, look in the window and see what's inside them and then maybe go off and try and find out who owns them. Uh, and it must have been exciting to look in through a window and realise, yeah, there's Absolutely. things in here I, mean, I can find. My heart was that pounding when I see certain images, JFK image hanging on a, on a, on a wall with the old radio under it. I couldn't believe it when I was looking at that. And I went to a lot of trouble to try and find out who owned the house. I had to actually go back to it a few times and finally got permission. And everybody was great with them, you know, as regards, you know, no one said, no, you can't go in there. Um, everybody was great. Once I tell them what I was doing, yeah. people didn't understand what I was doing because all these houses are very derelict and uh, they're wondering why are you going in there or what's there or like to be taken and, or photographed. When they see the pictures then, they're just amazed. And I always give them pictures then of what I've taken. And yeah. in some cases, some of the really good ones, I'd actually frame it and give it to them framed. I was so excited about it. And nobody refused? Absolutely not. No, no. And, and somebody thought you were from revenue at one stage. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, property tax. So, of course, yeah. So, so, you, so you, you'd locate a house, realise, yeah, I can take photographs in here. So, do you, you call around to neighbours to see who owns the house, who lived yeah, in the house? I, I see... You know, I, I get to know people o- over the years in different places through my photography, through my own business as well. And um, I just kind of loosely say to them, any idea who owns that house down the road? Where? You know, what's the story with that house? And I get a story then, you know, who owned it and um, what happened and where the people went. Um, and some of it is very sad as well, you know, because you would hear the stories of, of, of the houses and people might have, you know, emigrated or in some cases you might have um, people in there that never married and when they passed away the house was just left and no one there to take it over and mm. uh, that's, that's the sad side to it like uh, but the happy the happy moments there as well I got from people you know um, so that was you know more or less how we came about but there was there was evidence in some of them as if the last person out of the house just closed the door absolutely yeah 
I mean, there's a house down near Inch, um, one of the houses that I, done that I, that I came across, and um, an uncle, um, sorry, the chap that owns the house now, which was belonged to his uncle that he inherited from, um, and he said to me, I said, oh, when did it pass away? I said, uh, he said, about 25, 26 years ago, and I said, it looks like you just closed the door in the house and you've done nothing with it. And he said, yes, he said, I just closed the door. I didn't know what to do with the house because if I had to do anything major with it, there's a big cost involved in renovating. And he also said something little thing to me, which I probably can understand about traditions. Like, he didn't take anything out of the house. There was a lot of items there that, you know, there were nice items that you could take maybe and have them in your own house. Mm. Um, and he said, no, I would never take anything out from the house. He said, it's bad luck or something. There was kind of these traditions, you know, that they Superstitions yeah, almost. They yeah. there, was, there was one particular house, This, that's sorry, that particular house, beautiful washstand with a fabulous china bowl and, and um, jug. And it was really nice. And I said to myself, if someone, you know, because people do break into these houses, I know, I know. I said, that would be taken very, very quickly out of it. And b- brought off to an antique dealer and probably Absolutely, worth it. Yeah. yeah, and, and the, the, in one of the houses, um, you can see the shelf up on top with, with the good wear. Uh, that, you know, God, we should be using all those plates instead of having them away for, you know, for special occasions. Special occasion never, never arrives, but they were all just left in place. Yeah, see, this is, see the traditions, if you go back, um, and this is why it prompted me as well about the book, recording a period of Irish culture and history that's kind of gone and all our traditions that people had are disappearing very quickly because uh, I went to a lot of houses in my day job and like you don't see the sacred heart picture hanging in the houses and in modern houses anymore no they are still hanging in, in, in quite a few houses in rural Ireland but they are fading away and the holy water fund at the door you walk out the front door you bless yourself all that type of tradition is disappearing Ireland is a changed place yeah yeah, yeah, and that's the one thing that you you've captured, you've captured uh, a, a, a time the way we were. It's interesting you mentioned the Sacred Heart uh, pictures. Every I'm right in saying that every single house you went into had religious, had yeah, yeah, had, and had other yeah. religious photographs and religious artifacts. Yeah, um, even even my own lifetime. Um, my wife Noreen and her mother's house. No, she lived above in Lacklelua, um, and like. Her house was just covered in holy pictures, um, and and they were there and never touched and never moved um, until you know the house was changed hands or had to be renovated. Uh, but that was the way it was, you know. Uh, and people had a, it struck me really uh, when I'm in these houses because I'm in there and I'm in there on my own and like I'm doing I'm doing these, this type of photography has to be done on tripod because it's very some of the houses are very dark, so it's all time exposure. So I'm there like clicking the shutter of the camera and then I'm waiting for the picture to, to be to develop as it's been taken and there's a, there's a silence in the house yeah. and an eeriness as well and I'll be often thinking about things like that I'll be trying to imagine was there children here what you know trying to imagine them playing in the, in the, in the house and people and especially personal items like pizzas and clothing and things like that I came across a lot of that so you're trying to imagine it so there's a lot of respect as well you have to have when you're in yeah. there and that you respect the place you're in and there was evidence of children. I mean, there's a doll, a fabulous photograph with the doll and the photograph with the pram 
oh, I think they were called go-karts, weren't yes. they, those, those yeah. prams? And the ones when you folded it down, and as you say in it, if you caught your finger yeah. in it, it would pinch. pinch. Yeah. I, I, I can remember that as a child because I come from a family of 11 and my mother actually had one of them. And like space was limited in the house, so everything was folded away and put away somewhere. And that was one thing. And when I, I remember when I put that up on Facebook, uh, that was the, the, the comment that I got from most people. Oh, I remember that, um, especially the pinch. Yeah, when, when it used to be folded down. And you did, you, you, you put up, as you were taking the photographs, you put up some of them um, on Facebook. Were you surprised by the reaction? Um, not totally surprised. I knew it would, it would evoke memory, um, especially, like, the, the biggest reaction I got was to the JFK picture. Um, when I put that up, it just went mad completely um, because I, I, I'm kind of affiliated to a few other pages, like there's one called um, The Wild Atlantic Way, and there tend to be a lot of Irish-Americans um, on that page and when I put it up on that page I got a massive reaction to that particular picture again people identify straight away JFK it was hanging in the house um, and I get into stories then uh, like people saying like you know um, Ireland you know it was, it, it was a poor country one time um, and when people emigrated they done extremely well mm. I mean like for example the people that left the Blasket Islands and went over to Springfield in Massachusetts they all done so phenomenally well. So to have someone leave Ireland um, from a generation and become president of the of, of the United States was a major achievement, and it gave people a great confidence because the people didn't have the confidence, especially in Ireland in that time, and it gave people a great confidence. He was almost up there with the with the holy pictures, wasn't Absolutely. he? He, was <laughs> he, he had seen status uh, yeah. almost, and and Pope Pius yeah. was in there as well. And then w- one of the ones, uh, or a couple of the ones that got to me were the houses where the photographs were left behind of uh, somebody's wedding photograph and and you know somebody's great grandmother. And, and I just thought, oh, could you not have taken the photograph? Could somebody did somebody not want the photograph? Yeah, that's when there was one, and I talk about it sometimes when I when I do my photography things down in Kerry and the camera club, I'd be doing talks and things like that, and I'd be showing the photographs. And I refer to that particular one where there's a person, you know, like that, a, a grandmother or something like that. Someone's basically family. And I, I found it a small bit odd when I did go into the house that that was left there. And it was actually down on the ground. I actually put it back up on the wall myself yeah. to make the picture look more pleasing. Um, and I found it a bit strange. But I know myself, if I had pictures like that of my great-grandparents or something like that, I'd be inclined to treasure them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She could have been a contrary old woman, though. You, you don't know. You just uh, don't know. It's uh, it's wonderful. And, of course, there's the evidence of the era before rural electrification is in there yeah, and everything. There's one or two houses that, that's in that book that actually never, never had, had it. Oh, doesn't surprise me. Um, you, while the photography continues, you're still doing the day job, aren't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's my bread and butter. I love it. Um, I've all, and people often say to me, John, why aren't you doing photography full-time? You should be doing it full-time. I never wanted, I, I, it's always been my hobby, I love it, it's my passion, but my other job is my passion as well, but like, I, I, I find that... Which is, is it just fitted kitchens or is it general oh, carpentry? probably at the moment I'm doing an awful lot of building wardrobes and refurbishing work as well, like kitchens, I'm, I'm at it 35 years, and even kitchens that I put in myself, solid kitchens, which are perfect still, 20 and 25 years old, people are asking me to give them a bit of facelift, even painted them, put new worktop, new handles, that type of thing. Yeah. So I'm kept busy. There's, and, and I always think with a business like yours, when a business like yours gets busy, it's a sure sign there's a turn in the economy, isn't there? You know, because I mean, obviously during the downturn, things must have been really tough. 
and this is I kind of I did kind of move my photography a little bit further on when the when the downturn happened and I started kind of doing a little bit more with it. I started kind of doing a bit of teaching um, and running little photo little photo courses stuff like that. So it was a great way of kind of filling in, but I still I still was hoping I wouldn't have to depend on it for my living because I always was afraid it might take from the passion. Yeah, yeah, and you have an absolute great passion. Now you're going to launch the book next month. Yes. Where are you launching? I'm going to launch it in the Mercy Centre in Mallow on the 22nd of October in conjunction with Mallow Camera Club, which I'm still a very active member um, to it. Um, and hopefully it'll be a nice night. Um, and I'll Where does the book on sale then? The book has gone, gone into Phillips at the moment. It went into, into Phillips yesterday. It's available for myself directly. Um, new website going up very shortly. Because I self-published it, um, I have to. I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for distributing myself. Myself, so it's not going to be all over the place. You're not going to go into Dublin and see it inside Nice and so Okay, so yeah. You will see it in um, probably Easton's and Tralee and Killarney, and obviously Dingle will be a good few places in Dingle. But Phillips will have it in Mallow, and I'll have it myself directly from me. All you do is email me, um, net and um, I can organise it for you. Um, so really look. Because uh, and it's 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 t- it's out. A perfect time to bring it out because I think this is like a great Christmas present. Another important thing as well for me again, and the same with my last books, it's an Irish printed book, printed in Ireland. Well done. A lot of books are going abroad to be printed. I know even the more it might cost a little bit more to get printed. I was adamant it was going to be printed again in Ireland. Walsh colour print down in Castellan and printed it for me. Uh, absolutely delighted to have it printed in Ireland and more so delighted to have it printed in Kerry. Yeah, so see, well, they've done a fine job with it. Uh, and actually, when you, when you say colour, the 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 one thing, and I was smiling when I was looking through the pictures. God, some of the colours were very vibrant, weren't they? That they painted their houses. How did they stay in houses that colour? They were so bright. Gaudy is the word, but we'll just we'll go with vibrant. There's a dresser in there again, to the lime green. Oh. It's <laughs> just so blaring. <laughs> and I loved the the window in the toilet that they didn't have frosted glass. So they painted it green, which was the same colour as the bath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. All right, listen, John, it's terrific. Good luck with it. It's an absolutely delightful book. And um, we wish you well with it. And we thank you for joining us in the studio. Just one last thing. I just have to thank my wife, Noreen. Definitely, without Noreen on board all these projects, these wouldn't happen. The wind beneath your wings. Thank you for that, John. We'll talk again soon. Patricia Messenger on C103. Nominated for Speech Broadcaster of the Year at the 2018 IMRO Radio Awards. Well, thanks to Phyllis and my apologies, Phyllis. John had just left the studio when I saw your text. Uh, Phyllis is from Mallow. She used to own the shop called The Favourite in Mallow. She said when she got married, she remembers buying a statue of Our Lady and one of St. Martin, St. Patrick and many other religious statues. She says she still has them, but now she keeps them in her bedroom. And John Hooten mother used to shop in her shop uh, the favourite she remembers uh, John's mother uh, well and actually if you look at if you look through the book so many all of the houses had uh, statues various statues there is a statue of St Martin lots of statues of Our Lady lots of statues of the Sacred Heart and he just say the Child of Prague. I don't think any of the houses John went into the Child of Prague wasn't there. But it just seems sad that they were all left behind, just left as if time stood still in these houses and nobody bothered to take any of them uh, out. 1850 Now for the last year, a group of volunteers have been working hard to clean up and enhance the old Kilcrumper graveyard in Formoy. To catch up on how they're getting on, I'm joined once again by John Fenton of the Old Kilcrumper Graveyard Friends Association. Good morning to you, John. 
Good morning, Trish. And it's great to talk to you again. Take us back to how the group was formed and why. Yeah, uh, just over a year ago, Trisha, uh, there was many, many complaints about the condition of the graveyard. And uh, I decided myself to hold a public meeting and see could we get a group together to do it ourselves, which we did. We were very successful. And um, initially we used to have 40, 50, 60 people turning up helping all the way to Christmas. And presently there'd be normally 15 to 20 every second Saturday working there and uh, fantastic volunteers a great bunch of volunteers and do uh, all of the volunteers have loved ones buried there um no to no. be honest not, not necessarily no no um there's even one polish lady lives down the road she does all the flowers hanging baskets and all she obviously has no one there yeah. anyway um no 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 they're just uh generally a lot of people uh who are just want to do something good for the community and are interested in us. And, and how uh, much work have you done over the year? Oh, <laughs> well, sometimes we forget how bad it was until we look bad back at old photographs. But uh, basically we've cleared an awful lot of scrub and dirt and trees and everything away. We've dressed about, uh, we reckon, the most of 300 graves with limestone chippings. My goodness. Um, yeah, genuinely, uh, most of all those chippings were donated as well by different uh, quarry companies. Well done. Uh, we've invested in lawnmowers and all, so now we're cutting the grass regularly. And um, we put up uh, hanging baskets, uh, it's very, very nice uh, posts along the front of the graveyard with hanging baskets as well back in May. So it's looking quite good. But... Uh, we tend to forget how bad it was until you look at, at the pictures. Yeah, you know, you yeah. Do. Well, I remember. I, I mean, I remember we used to get phone calls in from people, particularly people who were visiting the area and had been led to believe that they had a family member buried there and they went in search of a grave. And we used to hear from people saying, "My goodness, is there nobody looking after that graveyard? Was there anybody looking after it before you guys took over?" Well. It was the council's remit to look after Tricia, but basically, with many years, I gather, just a couple of times a year, they were coming in with strimmers and, that and was cutting it. the grass down. That was it, you know. Um, and they, they just weren't capable of looking after us. Uh, and, and simple as that, we've looked, the council have been helpful to us, so we can't complain. But um, there is rumours that they might be able to get us a caretaker soon to help, but... Uh, the members of the association would still like to keep going anyway, long term, you know. Yeah, you've, you've, you've got a passion for it at this stage. You mentioned that the chippings have been donated by various quarries. There's obviously been other costs. How have you covered the cost of the work? Uh, fundraising, basically. Well, a lot of generosity. A lot of generosity from local businesses and sponsors and fundraising. We've had a couple of very, very successful uh, street collections uh, collected well over two and a half thousand euros on both of them which was fantastic and uh, some some people have been very generous some local business people have been very very good and uh, uh, after that into just fundraising which is bringing us to we're having a dance uh, tomorrow night in Formoy now because you, fundraising. you so the, the, this fundraising dance is going on because you want to now make the graveyard accessible for wheelchair users yeah, well, at the moment we're broke, Trish. Okay. <laughs> we have a small loan with the AIB in Formoy, uh because 
I suppose people don't realise how much money we've spent, but we've a small loan, not too hectic. But we're hoping maybe we can clear our loan and what we've left over, just like to make it reasonably accessible. At, at present, someone comes to the main gate in a wheelchair, they have to be lifted across yeah. chippings, yeah. which is probably very embarrassing, especially at a funeral or something. So we want to make it as accessible as possible with what funds we have. Um, at least that someone can come in the gate and get onto the hard pathways easily and, and manoeuvre most of the graveyard. So we decided that would be the next thing we should do. So you've organised um, a dance, which is also, I'm assuming, besides, I mean, there's the fundraising nature of it, it'll be a social night out for all the volunteers well, and maybe all the ones who helped out in the early days get them all back together. Yes. Um, we looked at us, look, we were 12 months old back at the end of August and... Uh, we said, number one, to be nice to have an occasion to celebrate that. It uh, would be nice to maybe give people the opportunity to come and meet the volunteers, uh, a bit of an icebreaker night. And mm-hmm. uh, thankfully, we, we reckon at the moment we've about 160 people coming. Well, it's so a great night out. Yeah, and you're having, you're having a buffet and a dance and it's all going on in the rowing club in Formoy tomorrow the, night. The rowing club in Formoy... Uh, we're having a buffet meal and while that's happening uh, those local musicians will be playing traditional music and then we're going on to a musician for the night Dave Mulcahy of Mitchestown will be playing for the night we're going to have raffles we're, we're not going to make much on the door tickets Tricia so we're hoping that the raffles people will be reasonably generous and okay. uh, we might make some money and a hopefully. chance as well uh, John to maybe get some, some new volunteers because I take it you're always welcoming of, of new volunteers yes yes the, the, the funny thing about it is uh, when the work was really hard Trish, we had lots and lots of people the work has got more easier and there's a fall like, off in volunteers yeah, like, but, and it's actually a much nicer day out now because we, we have our own storage facilities. We have a cooker. We have a, one of our members is an excellent chef. And most weeks we have lovely homemade soups, cakes, whatever, and people can yeah, sit great. down. Yeah. And, so and, and there's so it's, it, there's a social aspect to the clean-up days? Oh, without a doubt. Without yeah. a doubt. Um, unfortunately, I seem to miss a lot of them myself. But, but um but yes, the, the the lads that go now, lads lads and ladies, they just um, enjoy a cup of tea at half ten, eleven o'clock, uh, another bite to eat maybe about one o'clock. Uh, I often wonder how they get anything done. Yeah, but the work still but, gets done. Yeah. But, and that's, look, it, it makes it a day out and it would be nice if other people could witness that and come along and like some people feel, oh, we wouldn't be able to do anything. But you'd be surprised they you could would. work a paintbrush you know, brush up the leaves, whatever, do do whatever, and uh, and it's it is becoming a social uh, day out. And it's the people. it's the second Saturday of every month. So when is the next clean up day? Our next one, because we were meant to be there tomorrow, so we're cancelled that because of the dance. So the thirteenth yeah. of October. Thirteenth, if people want to, want to turn up. But in the meantime, <laughs> where are tickets on sale for the social tomorrow night, or are they well, all gone? Well, they're still available. Still available. Handley's, Handley's. From my, until probably this afternoon, 6 okay. o'clock. We'll have to cut oh, it off then for... For numbers. For well, listen, numbers. In, enjoy tomorrow night and continue good luck with the great work you're doing at the Old Kilcrumper Graveyard. And as always, John, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you Thanks for joining us. Thank good morning. Some of your calls and texts coming into the programme. We were talking about Old Kilcrumper uh, Graveyard in the last hour and 
I'm assuming that that's prompted this text from a listener to say, Hi Patricia, my husband was in Kilcrumper Graveyard. Now, I don't know if it's the old Kilcrumper Graveyard or the new Kilcrumper Graveyard because it doesn't say on the text. But my husband was in Kilcrumper Graveyard the other day and he found a photograph which was folded over with the year 1963 written on the back. And it's a picture of two children. Uh, I would really love to get it back to the owner. Could you give it a mention, please? So does that ring a bell for anybody? An old photograph from 1963. I'm assuming a black and white photograph from 1963 of two children. Obviously a much loved photograph. Somebody was carrying it around with them on a visit to Kilcrumper Graveyard and it fell out of their pocket or fell out of a wallet or a bag or whatever. If you know who owns that photograph or you think it's yours make contact with us please because I have the contact details and we would love to reunite that uh, with the owner particularly when we've been talking about photographs with John Hooten and his wonderful book uh, The Way We uh, Were. Uh, Now somebody's asking where's that book on save? uh, John said in in Philip's bookshop uh, and he's also hoping to set up his own website and he'll be setting it online as well because it's self-published so it doesn't it won't be out you know I wasn't able to say as you normally say after book available in all good bookshops not that any bookshop is bad but certainly Phil's bookshop in Mallow has it and he's hoping to distribute it kind of around the general area and down into Kerry because a lot of the photographs were taken in Kerry as well but I have to say and I mentioned this when we were off air to John when you look at these pictures they, the photographs could have been taken in any abandoned house anywhere across the country because he doesn't give exact he doesn't give any locations as to where the house house were he just told us himself they were taken in various parts of Cork and Kerry but I, I, I guarantee you people from Donegal from Carlo Galway Leitrim anywhere around the country could open up these books and open up one of his books and think the photograph was taken in their neck of the woods because it was a different era and every house had the items that are photographed every house would have had them so that's, that's what I'm saying I, I, you know anyone who will open up this book you will look at it and you'll, there'll be a photograph in it of a picture or an item that I guarantee you you will have had in your house when you were growing up and someone else wants me to mention the sites that I mentioned who are giving their profits to the Irish Cancer Society that's Modern Botany modernbotany.ie and they are donating the, pro, the profits from all online sales to the Irish Cancer Society, which is a wonderful, kind thing to do. It's for a 24-hour period from midnight tonight to midnight tomorrow, Saturday. So if you, want to, if you are a fan of modern botany and their gorgeous products uh, and you, you need to buy some, then please buy between midnight tonight and midnight tomorrow night with the proceeds going to the Irish Cancer Society because, of course, this is uh, Cancer Week. And also I mentioned to you that two weeks tonight... I have the great honour to be MC at a health and wellbeing night, which is going to go on in the Munster Arms Hotel. It's it's going to be a terrific lineup of speakers. The dietitian Paula Mee is going to be talking. The psychologist Shane Martin will talk, and then we'll wrap up the evening with a cookery demonstration by the one and only Dervla O'Rourke. Lovely, lovely night out. Um, I'm slow to say a night for the ladies, but usually what happens at these nights is a tendency to be a night for the ladies, but the men are also very, very 
very welcome. And tickets are priced at just €10. And everybody that turns up on the night, besides having a very interesting and informative night out you all go away with a little good goodie bag there's a gift bag uh, for everyone and the night has been organised and sponsored by Bandon Co-op and the National Dairy Council and they are giving all of the proceeds on the night to the West Cork Rapid Response and we all know the terrific work of the West Cork Rapid Response if you want to purchase your ticket in advance and that's what we're trying to advise people to do it would be lovely to say all the tickets are sold in advance of the night tomorrow Saturday if you're in and around the Riverside Shopping Centre uh, in Bandon. They are going to be selling tickets to the event between 10am and 4pm tomorrow if you want to purchase tickets to the Health and Wellbeing Night. But it is on two weeks tonight, the on uh, October the 12th. Actually, this night week is the... I'll be getting all excited and ready to go to the IMRO uh, Radio Awards. Uh, of course, um, I'm absolutely thrilled that I've been nominated for Speech Broadcaster uh, of the Year. And I've said it before, and hand on heart, I do mean it, the nomination to me is a win just to get nominated because it's, you know, it's a, it's a national uh, competition and to get nominated is just such a buzz. And myself and John Paul fall after the show next Next Friday, we'll be putting on the Gladrags and getting ready to go to uh, Kilkenny. Now, we won't be the only person because every year as part of the IMRO uh, Radio Awards, they do a Hall of Fame. And I think there's four Hall of Fame awards being handed out this year. But one of them is going to uh, Pat Kenny. And I read with interest today that Pat Kenny is going to go on the Late Late Show tonight to speak with Ryan Tupperty. Now, Pat Kenny and Ryan Tupperty over the years have had a bitter rivalry uh, on air and you remember the history behind this really is and obviously Pat Kenny is going on to talk about the fact that he's going to be um, induced into the IMRO uh, Radio Awards uh, Hall of Fame next uh, next Friday night but um, it was 10 years ago that Ryan Tupperty took over the reins from uh, Pat Kenny. Now Pat Kenny and Ryan Tupperty had previously gone head to head in a ratings war where you had Pat Kenny at the helm of the Late Late Show and then you had Ryan Tupperty hosting Tupperty Tonight and that's what his chat show was called and in 2009 during his last stint on the Late Late Show Pat Kenny described Ryan Tupperty and I quote as a young man in a terrible hurry desperate to do everything that everyone before him has done uh, he urged Tupperty to slow down and win your spurs. Now, Ryan Tuberty later responded, saying that there shouldn't be any competition between the pair. Ryan Tuberty said, I didn't pay too much attention to Pat Kenny's comments. There shouldn't be any rivalry. I'm going one way and he's going another. He has produced the goods on The Late Late Show for 10 years now. And last year, Pat Kenny advised Ryan Tuberty to consider stepping down from the chat show before he was 50. He said it is really down uh, to Ryan. But for his own sanity, I would say maybe another five years, because otherwise there's a chance you'll start repeating yourself. There are a limited pool of people uh, you could interview uh, here. So he was still, even up to last year, having a little bit of a dig at a dig at him. I suppose the only person that could really give you advice on whether to stay on in the Late Late Show would be the one and only the great uh, Gay Byrne. But it's interesting to hear Gay Byrne when he talks now and I know he's 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 unwell at the moment and, and we wish him well and, and wish him good health. He's he's still bat- battling cancer at the moment. But he his greatest regret looking back and I mean look at what he achieved on the Late Late Show but his greatest uh, regret is that he worked too much and that he didn't spend enough time with Kathleen and the 
girls and and it's sad really that he now reflects and says he lost out on family life because he committed so much to both his radio show and to the Late Late Show, which became the longest running chat show, didn't it, in the world? And it's, uh, and I know he's kind of making up for last time now and that he seems to spend a lot of time with the grandchildren, uh, which is terrific. But that will be, that will make for an interesting watch tonight if you are a fan of the Late Late Show. Uh, the chat between Ryan Tuberty and uh, Pat Kenny. I'm sure it'll be all sweetness and light. Okay, some more of your texts coming in. Somebody earlier on was having a pop at Sinn Féin and in particular Leonie Riada running for the presidency and saying that they'd never vote for Sinn Féin and they cited been at the ploughing match uh, recently and they passed the Sinn Féin tent and they were disgusted to see that the at the Sinn Féin tent they were selling t-shirts with the word hunger strike written on the front of it. Well, somebody wants to pick up that texter Pat does and says Patricia the 1916 people who went on hunger strike done so to show the world what the British people were doing to them likewise the hunger strikers of the 1980s had a very real reason for giving their lives I hope that stupid person will be able to see that I have no name on the text from the other person but Pat uh, describes him as being a stupid person Michael D Higgins this is from John Michael D Higgins didn't hesitate to sign the property tax bill which gave no waivers to pensioners or people on social welfare. Meanwhile, he gets €6,000 a week by way of salary to spend as he sees fit and he can stay in hotels at €3,000 a night. Nice work if you can get it, says John. Now, Michael D, by the way, has already come out and defended the spending the hotel that he stayed in at €3,000 a night. He said nothing to do with him. He doesn't book his own hotels. He just turns up at the hotels. And he also said he'd be as happy to stay in a tent and that he has stayed in hostels and has stayed in tents on overseas journeys when he went away with... um, um, countries that work in developing countries so he says he doesn't look for uh, hotel rooms um, you know well maybe he maybe uh, now that it's been pointed out to him if he does get and is expected to get re-elected maybe he might point out to his minders and his handlers to take a look at the cost of the hotels that he's staying in and could there be a cheaper hotel down the road that wouldn't cost the Irish taxpayers at three thousand euro a night. What would the hotel be like for three thousand euro a night? It must be good. Must be terrific. I mentioned when somebody um, when we were talking about poverty and people living in poverty and people struggling, and we were talking with the societies of Vincent Paul and Social Justice Ireland about uh, a very heartbreaking, I have to say, report where they spoke with thirty families around the country who were very honest because of their promise of anonymity, we're very honest in saying how difficult it is to cope if you're just living on social welfare, uh, particularly with children, or if you're living on a very low income and how difficult it is to make ends meet with some of the mothers admitting that they go hungry because what food is left is given to the children. And somebody said, sent in a text saying, who would I suggest giving money to where you know the money will go to the right people. And I said, you can never go far wrong with any of your local societies, the Vincent de Paul's, and, and I also, I think, mentioned uh, Katrina Toomey inside and Penny Dinner as well. So, uh, on the giving to St Vincent de Paul, somebody says, helping St Vincent de Paul is a no-no. I wouldn't give them a cent. I see it every day, says this texter. The money is filed out to those who don't need it for cigarettes, etc. And free coal is sold for drink. Nobody needs handouts. They get plenty from social welfare. They only choose to flog it. 
and I always get annoyed when I see texts like that. Okay, can I say, and I know Vincent, precisely Vincent DePaul, uh, will, and we've spoken about this before in the past, when you hear of people saying, I know someone who got Vincent DePaul and they don't deserve it, they're getting money there and should they're smoking and drinking and all of this. If there is, and I would be, I would say this is the most, if there's 1% of people who take money for the societies of Vincent DePaul who are scamming it, I'd say that is the very most. 99% of the people who get money and food and clothes and fuel from the Society of Vincent de Paul genuinely need it. Nobody willingly knocks on the door of Vincent de Paul to say, I am in need of help. I've had Brendan Dempsey of the Cork, uh, the Cork City branches of Vincent de Paul on the programme on many occasions, pleading and begging people to come to them for help and saying if you are in need, if you are surviving and living on bread and butter for two days of the week because you don't have any money for food, saying come, we can give you food, we can give you food parcels. He spoke of the story that always sticks out of my mind of bringing in a box of food into a house where um, a granny was looking after some children and the child getting all excited because there was a bag of porridge and asking the grandmother to make porridge because the child was hungry and they were waiting on this food to arrive. There are there are unfortunately uh, thousands of people, very genuine people who get helped out by St Vincent de Paul. People you mightn't even know who these people are. There are also people who will put on a very brave face to the outside world and they appear that they have it all. And you go in behind those closed doors and they don't have it all. What I would suggest to the person who sent in that text are indeed anyone else who thinks that everybody is scamming Vincent de Paul is go to your local conference of St Vincent de Paul and offer to become a volunteer, offer to join and go out on home visitations with the members of St Vincent de Paul and then come back and tell me that these people are scamming the system. They're not. They're not. And there are also many people who should be going to St Vincent de Paul for help but unfortunately their pride it just won't let them. I mean, Brendan Dempsey will always say when I talk to him that it's not my, it's not his money he's giving away. It's other people giving the money in the hope that they can go on to help people. There are a lot of people who now, thankfully, that we've had an upturn in the economy, who went to VDP when, during the downturn when they needed it. They were embarrassed to do it, but they had no choice. They had to do it. And now that they're back on their feet, they are now the people that are giving money back into St Vincent de Paul. There are very few people, and and you will always get scam artists, but scam artists exist in everywhere. I mean, there's people scamming the social welfare system. Uh, and, and what can we do? We, we can't stop giving social welfare to everyone because we have people who are, you know, scamming and letting on to be ill when they're not ill and letting, you know, saying that they can't find work when they should be able to find work. Those people will always be there. And St Vincent de Paul do the very best that they can to do background checks and to, you know, they, and they don't want to pry too much. If people are finding it difficult enough to come and ask for help, they don't want to start prying and asking, you know, too many questions. They have to take pay people on face value uh, as well. And shame on anyone that would scam the likes of St Vincent de Paul. But please do not stop giving to what is a wonderful society that is putting food 
on a lot of tables and putting coal into fires and helping people out, people who genuinely need it. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. Supporting businesses, supporting communities, serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. Crosshaven Veteran and Vintage Club, they're hosting an auction for a fully restored 1978 MG motor car, uh, plus others. It's an aid of Cork Arc Cancer Society in the RCYC, 8 o'clock tonight. More details from Mark on 87 265 Trad for Troca with Johnny Bongos and friends. That's in the Gallery Bar in Mallow. 1 o'clock today for a lunch and brunch session. There's also a session at 10 o'clock tonight. UCC are offering a diploma course in disability studies part-time. It's over two years. It begins in October of this year, but the closing date for applications is next Thursday, the 4th of October. You can check out more on their website, www.ucc.ie forward slash en forward slash ACE. And the Human Life International Organisation are running a free bus to knock for their annual pilgrimage. That's on October the 6th from St. Patrick's Quay in Cork City. The bus will leave at 7.30am. Booking is essential 094-9375-993. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Text Patricia with your comment now. 0862103103. Now tomorrow the National Rowing Centre is inviting members of the public to its Farrenwood headquarters to officially welcome our golden trio of world champions. Michelle Carpenter is the CEO of Rowing Ireland and uh, she joins me. Good afternoon to you, Michelle. Good afternoon. And we couldn't let the moment pass without finding out what are, what are the details for tomorrow. What plan is in place? Uh, well, we have a trials on tomorrow, a trials on an open youth regatta. So it's the optimum time to welcome home our heroes um, uh, from their their success in Plovdiv in Bulgaria. We would welcome the public out any time from three o'clock on, and then later on in the afternoon, the team uh, will arrive uh, and they will be be greeted by by the rowers that are there and any members of the public who'd like to come out and, and welcome them. And who's confirmed um, de- definitely coming tomorrow? I take it Paul and Gary and um, Sunita? Uh, Sunita is definitely coming and the pair with Afrik and, um, and Emily who are sixth in the world and some of the other members of the team are coming as well. And are Paul and Gary? They should be there, yes. Great, we, great. We hope that they'll be there. Okay, they. and it's a, a nice opportunity for people to get photographs taken with them as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is, yeah. Michelle, what does it mean to the sport of rowing to have three world champions? Well, it's incredible, but it's not only three world champions. We've had a, a, a pair, a women's pair, that has been in sixth place as well in their first world championship event with Emily Hegarty from from Skibbereen and, and Afric Kyo from who's, who's based in Cork as well. And then the men's double of Roland Byrne and Philip Doyle as well were ninth and and the women's doubled it very well. So overall, as a team, and that's the whole celebration, it's not just focusing just on the gold medals, which obviously we're very proud of, but we're, we're focusing on, on the success of the overall team. If it had been this time next year, we would have uh, four to five boats going to Tokyo to, to represent Ireland. And, you know, we're in a fantastic place with Irish rowing at the minute with that. And we, we have an incredible, um, our quad as well, our men's lightweight quad came fifth. Uh, with Jake and Vincent McCarthy from Skibbereen and uh, 
and you got from Waterford around Ballantyne from, from Enniskillen. So, you know, we're in a very strong place. Uh, we're second in the world in uh, in Olympic classification both as well. So we're very, uh, we're very in a very good place for Irish rowing at the moment. It's incredible, isn't it? it? Really, isn't it? And it's really just sort of it's ballooned in probably the last what five ten years. Uh, it's even less than that. And now with a, we have a new high performance director on coach, a new coaching team, and obviously we've Dominic Casey still coaching um, a lot of the crews as well. You know we started building the sports a number of years ago and those things that were put in place are, are really seeing the fruition then together with our new high performance director our high performance committee we've put a, a solid strategy and a structure in place for Irish rowing and, and that's reaping the benefits as well at the moment. And all of the rowers the, who will be there tomorrow are they great role models for the younger rowers coming up? Absolutely I mean you know Sunita and what she has done is incredible. I mean, she represents everything in Irish society at the minute. You know, she, she, she's originally from Latvia. She's come and she's made Balancholic her home for the last, you know, she's been in Ireland for the last 10, 15 years. Uh, her kids are going to school there, the local school. She's been, she's been in the schools this morning in Balancholic with the medals. Fabulous. Uh, she's a mother of two. She, she's had an awful lot to come up against bad weather in Rio and poor lane, you know, selection in Rio and, and, and illness and, and everything. And this is the great thing about rowing, you know, you can bring it into anything in life, business, school, education, you know, and or, or sport in general, actually. You know, the, the things that you're, you come up against in sport uh, and, and as Benita has in rowing are lifelong lessons, really. And, and she strives now and, and that gold medal and it's special to see her finally with us. Fantastic. And can you already see potential world rowers coming up through the ranks, Michelle? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we've, we've a very strong under-23 team. We, we won a gold, silver and fifth medal at the under-23 World Championships this year. We must forget them also this weekend and the importance of that and the pathway. And uh, then we, we have a junior team who went to the junior worlds this, this year. And, uh, no, it's, it's, it's great. We have a great schools program at Get Going, Get Rowing. 30,000 kids look like uh, we've had 30,000 kids rowing in schools this year. Uh, you know, Cork is strong with Cork Sports Partnership and the team there. And, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a great place to be in. That's brilliant. And I know you mentioned it because it is a busy weekend. You've got the, the Irish uh, trial event uh, happening tomorrow. And this is all about the future rowers, isn't it, for you know, Paris 2024 and beyond? Absolutely. So everyone will be trial. Everyone is required to trial this weekend unless they were at those world championships. They're the only athletes that are exempt from the trials. So, so we're really looking at the stars of the future. So when we were looking at when to to have the homecoming event it seems like the optimum time not only have we today's stars and those that we're very proud of we have those that are coming up the ladder and that we will be proud of what well, we are proud of now but we we hope to be proud of it in paris and and beyond in la yeah they'll become the household names of the future we just yes, they're not exactly. household names at the moment but guaranteed they will be um in the coming years okay so lee valley center tomorrow from three o'clock no, the National Rowing Centre. Sorry, the National Rowing Centre, my apologies, from uh, 3 o'clock tomorrow in Farnwood. Absolutely, yes. Okay, listen, Michelle, thank you for that. Enjoy the day as well, and good luck to all the rowers tomorrow. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme. No 
No problem. Thank you very much. Good afternoon to you. Bye bye. That is Michelle Carpenter, who's CEO of uh, Rowing uh, Ireland. And Michael has just sent me on a stunning photograph of beautiful Castletown Bear with what looks like a gorgeous clear blue sky. And they are waiting the arrival of the Irish Community Air Ambulance. It is going to be landing in the GAA pitch in Castletown Bear in about 20 minutes. They're expecting it there at one o'clock and it'll be there until three this afternoon if people want to go down and get up close and personal with the Irish Community Air Ambulance that of course was fundraised by so many local people and they're on a tour of the county and uh, this seems to be the first stop Castletown Bear at one o'clock until three the GAA pitch if you want to go along and somebody said sorry I didn't get the name of the man's book you were talking about that was John Hooten was uh, is the photographer's name and the book is called uh, The Way We Were The Way We Were by John Hooten okay going oh and just one final one just wondering says the texter what does a percentage of the trade union money still go to the Labour Party says Anthony if so why does that continue no that got discontinued remember there was a thing called the political funding bill which meant the corporation don't Donations of over 200 euro would be prohibited unless the donors met a very strict and exacting condition and uh, donations of trade unions were uh, effectively treated as corporation donations so they stopped as in when that political funding bill went through which was in 2012 as far back as then Uh, so no so that meant that was the end of the trade union giving money all the various trade unions used to give a percentage of their subs to the Labour Party but no that doesn't exist anymore this is Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. I'm Mark Malone, our movie reviewer, joins us online uh, this week. Good afternoon to you, Mark. Hi, Patricia. Now, you went to two movies this week, Black Klansman and Ant-Man and the Wasp film. Now, on Black Klansman, this is described as based on a crazy, outrageous, incredibly true story. It's also described as a comedy drama, yet I can see the KKK in the title. So I'm assuming this is about the Ku Klux Klan. It is, and it is based on a true story. And I suppose if you were to ask me what the main problem of the film is, it's funny that you should mention the fact that uh, it's considered to be a comedy. And I think that's the problem with it. because And it's the tone, because for me it was a little bit too comedic. Because this is directed by Spike Lee, who has uh, a kind of a history of making these very, very angry movies. And that's what I wanted to see on screen. I wanted to see on screen the film, you know, do you remember the film Do the Right Thing back in the late 80s? I do. You know, it's a searing look at kind of uh, racism in America. And that's the Spike Lee I wanted. You know, over the years, you know, his, um, what he's produced has been varying in quality. You know, he, he followed up Do the Right Thing with movies like uh, More Better Blues and Jungle Fever. Um, he kind of redeemed himself slightly for me with uh, Malcolm X, which stars uh, starred Denzel Washington. But the, the Spike Lee that I want is the Spike Lee of Do the Right thing where it's just really really angry because obviously he has made this film in you know response to what's happening in America at this moment in time and especially and there are little kind of references to the marches in Charlottesville for example uh, over the past uh, couple of years or so as well. It is based on a true story but uh, And it's based back in the 70s? It's based in the 70s and it's about this uh, young man by the name of uh, Ron Stallworth. Now he's an African American and he's played by John David Washington who's Denzel Washington's son huh. and if fact, if you close your eyes, you might as well be listening to Denzel Washington. He's so similar. But he's a very, very well-educated young African-American come, just come out of college, and he wants to join the police force, and he joins the police force in Colorado, and he is the first African-American man to do so. And he is warned by his superiors. They said, look, you know, be, be aware of what you're getting into here. You are going to come up against racism, but we need people like you to be
be in our police force, so come join us. And as he's in the police force, his uh, intelligence ma- means that, you know, he gets on and gets on well. And um, at one stage, he ends up in what they call their kind of intelligence di- division, and he is uh, sent to go undercover um, under to... Um, see, for example, into the black areas to see what they're up to, because, of course, at that time, there was a lot of, uh, you know, insurrection at that time. And he isn't really, you know, he's kind of educated as to what's happening in America there, but at the main, at the same time, he's kind of still believes in police force, he still believes in the, the rules of law. And so, therefore, then, one day, he's just reading the newspaper, and he sees that there's an ad in the newspaper for the Ku Klux Klan, and there's a phone number. So he rings the phone number, and he says, look, I'd like to become a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And they said, look, d- d- excellent, we're looking for people like you come along but of course he can't come along because he's African American and so he goes to Adam Driver who uh, plays the character of Flip Zimmerman and says look you have got to go and pretend to be me and Flip says look uh, look, you know I I don't particularly want to and uh, he takes um, um, a lot of persuading to do so because um, I think at one stage he says to um, Ron Stallworth he said look for you this is a crusade for me uh, this is just a job and Ron kind of points out the fact that uh, Adam Driver's character is, um, is Jew and he said that the Klan hates Jewish people just as much as black people. You've got to go and do this. And so basically that's what uh, the, the film is all about, whilst Ron continues to uh, be in communication over the phone with people uh, in the Ku Klux Klan, with people, for example, like David Duke, who of course made an appearance at uh, Charlottesville uh, just uh, recently, uh, brilliantly played by uh, Topher Grace. It's um, Adam Driver, who, uh, as the character of Flip Zimmerman, who goes and becomes a member uh, um, undercover of the Ku Klux Klan. And as I say, if, if I was to make a, you know, it, the film looks amazing. I mean, the reproduction of the 70s is incredible. Um, but if I have a problem with it, is it's the comedic tone. Because that's not what the Spike Lee that I want, you know? I want the really nasty, angry kind of uh, Spike Lee. But for all of that, what it does do, of course, is that it opens the film to a lot of people, whereas if I think if it was more kind of narrow-minded, it wouldn't have been. And uh, I was hugely entertained by it. I, th- I thought it was terrific. Okay, yeah, it just it struck me when I said, this is about Luke Stan, it's going to be, it's going to be a comedy. It's done well, though. It won the, the, the Palm d'Or in, at the Cannes Film Festival. It has done well, and it has been very, very well received, yeah. But, I mean, the thing is that it almost kind of portrays the Klansmen as just kind of these jokers, these kind of idiots, these alcoholic fools. But, in fact, uh, and it kind of seems to kind of almost veer away from the reality of the Klan and what they did and what they, uh, and what they do. And, and that's the thing why I was kind of slightly disappointed with it, because I wanted the reality and the nastiness of these organisations to be portrayed on, on screen. But, uh, as you say... Um, Spike Lee seems to have decided, well, it'll be kind of a comedy kind of drama. Um, and, and that's the only thing that disappointed me. Other than that, I would, would certainly recommend it. Okay. I thought it was worth, very worth going to see Black uh, Klansman. Mark it out of 10. I'll give it eight. Eight out of ten. Okay, now you went also, you went for a second movie this week and you went to Ant-Man and the Wasp. This is where American superheroes, are these Marvel comics? Is yeah, it's Marvel, Marvel yeah. yeah. It, I mean, the thing about Ant-Man is that it's kind of like the younger brother of all the kind of Marvel movies because you've got these huge, huge budget Marvel movies and then you've got Little Ant-Man as well <laughs> uh, at the same time. And um, it's been out a few weeks, but uh, I thought I might as well, do, I saw it a couple of weeks ago, but I was going to do a review, review it last week, but you were obviously on an OB last week, so we didn't do I it. I don't know if I've ever heard of Ant-Man. But the first one was hugely successful and it shouldn't have been and nobody expected it to be I mean it really caught people by surprise because it had a writer-director a guy by the name of Edgar Wright who's a brilliant director and was involved in a lot of the kind of early Simon Pegg movies and just up to about two weeks before you know uh, principal filming was supposed to take place he left due to artistic uh, differences and it then took Paul Rudd the star of this uh, to kind of take over and say right he sat down with a couple of buddies of his and they just wrote this very very funny script and it worked I mean it was a small 
small movie. It wasn't, um, nobody expected it to do anything. It was a huge hit. And what made it so great, I think, was just the fact that it was so quirky and so different. Michael Douglas has this uh, ability to kind of shrink or enlarge uh, anything to any size. For example, he, ca- he, carries his, um, he carries his building around in a suitcase, flips a button, and it becomes this huge, massive building. So he looks for kind of an empty kind of office space. And, and then, of course, it suddenly appears this huge building. Mind you, nobody at any stage walking past goes, where did that building come from? Which <laughs> um, I thought was kind of interesting. But also he can, can control ants, and of course the, then he can shrink uh, Paul Rudd down to ant size, which means that he can get in and out of just about anywhere. Um, in the first film, we learned that um, Michael Douglas's wife, uh, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, is stuck in what's called the uh, quantum realm, which is like a, an alternate dimension. And he is trying to build this machine to try and get into the dimension uh, to free his wife, who he hasn't seen in 30 years. Uh, also, whilst he's doing that, he comes up against the, the this, um, this character called the Ghost, uh, played by Hannah John Kamen, and uh, the, actually the um, the outfit that the Ghost wears is extraordinary. It's actually quite creepy. Unfortunately, <laughs> the, the woman inside it and the character inside it isn't so great. I mean, her kind of excuse for wanting to destroy the world is just because she's kind of feeling a bit sorry for herself, and that's a bit of a shame. And then, a bit like the, the Clansman film, I think every now and then, I think the the script is a little bit sloppy, and it doesn't really quite work, and it needed um, a little bit more. Or bite, I think, um, and um, but, and which it doesn't have it sometimes. The other thing is that I wanted more Ant Man in this film. It's more about the Wasp character. Now I went to see this with the teenage daughter, who of course is one of these kind of uh, politically correct kind of millennials, millennials who says, "Oh well, it, you know, it's great, great to see that the Wasp played by a woman, and that's you know, that's fabulous." But I wanted more Ant Man because in the first film, uh, Paul Rudd had this wonderful relationship, as I say, with his pal Luis, played by Michael Pena, and it was very, very funny indeed. And that's not really we don't really see very much of that. Um, um, it's more to do with the, the Wasp really in the film. I must say that, look, it's still very, very entertaining. It's still very funny. Paul Rudd is always very, very watchable. And, you know, I ended up enjoying it, but not as much as I really wanted to. And, and by the title, you expected it's going to be more Ant-Man than Wasp-Man. You would think so, yeah. yeah, 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 but, okay. um, yeah. All right, but if you're a superhero film fan, you're going to love it. Yeah, I mean, Basically. people expect it because um, this kind of film comes after Infinity War, in which, um, no, not Infinity War, it was Captain America Civil War, I think. Uh, Ant-Man did make an appearance in that, but he didn't in Infinity War, and people were wondering why. And there was a lot of talk on the internet, but uh, in fact, the film doesn't actually expose anything uh, to do with uh, Infinity War in this at all, I'm afraid. But uh, in its, on its own, look, it's, there's some of the effects, some of the uh, se- uh, action sequences are beautifully done. It's funny, and but not as good as I want. Okay. All right. Mark it out of 10. Six Six out of 10. And that is Ant-Man and the Wasp. Thank you for that. We'll chat to you again next Friday. Thanks for joining us. That is uh, Mark Malone, our movie reviewer.
Amy Winehouse on C103 and back to Black. Be very, very careful, ladies and gentlemen. A guy rang us to say he had his car robbed outside his door in Mallow. He left the car door unlocked, which he accepts as a bad habit. There was a guy calling door to door. He answered the door, said he didn't want whatever the guy was uh, selling or offering. Went for a quick shower, got out of the shower, noticed his car door open. When he went back to the car, his wallet and expensive jacket gone. Uh, remind everyone, lock your cars, please even in the driveway of homes. Once again, um, sorry to hear that. It's, it's just a horrible thing to happen. Uh, don't forget that those health and wellbeing, the health and wellbeing night in Bandon, two weeks tonight, tickets on sale tomorrow, Riverview Shopping Centre between 10am and 4. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to Bernie Murphy, who's been filling in for John Paul this week. We're back with you Monday morning at 10. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.